The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Our next case is State versus Medlin. We will hear from the appellant. May it please this honorable court and Chief Justice Newby. My name is Sandra Haygood, and I'm here on behalf of the defendant appellant, James Gregory Medlin, and I would like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Medlin appeals to this court on one single issue, unreasonableness of a probation condition that forbids him to contact his mother-in-law, even indirectly through a third party, when she has custody of his children and he has visitation rights under the custody order in place. The trial court abused her discretion by imposing this special condition because it is not, quote, reasonably necessary to ensure that the defendant will lead a law-abiding life or to assist him to do so, or reasonably related to Mr. Medlin's rehabilitation, and the condition must be vacated. To summarize the relevant facts very briefly for the court, Mr. Medlin was convicted of obtaining property by false pretenses. This conviction arose from unfortunate facts. After injuring his back, Mr. Medlin developed an addiction to prescription drugs. Mr. Medlin's mother-in-law was granted custody of his and his wife's children in 2019. Mr. Medlin was subsequently charged with pawning a ring that his mother-in-law had given him for safekeeping. Mr. Medlin and his wife both testified that the ring he pawned was his wife's engagement ring and he had pawned it with her knowledge and permission. But the jury found that the ring that Mr. Medlin had pawned was the one belonging to his mother-in-law. The trial court, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sentenced Mr. Medlin to five to 15 months of custody, but suspended sentence for 30 months of supervised probation. As a special condition of probation, the trial court required that Mr. Medlin have no contact whatsoever with his mother-in-law, even indirectly through a third party, although he has visitation rights under the custody order in place and his mother-in-law has custody of his children. This court, in State v. Stallings has stated that probation conditions must be reasonable and just. And the legislature has followed this principle by requiring that probation conditions must be reasonably necessary to ensure that the defendant will lead a law-abiding life or to assist him to do so. The legislature has also required that special conditions of probation must be reasonably related to the defendant's rehabilitation. The key phrases here are reasonably necessary and reasonably related. Thus, although the trial court has broad discretion to impose special conditions, this court and the legislature have placed limits on that discretion by requiring reasonableness. Counsel, what would be the basis for this court to find that this no contact special condition of probation does not bear a rational relationship to his rehabilitation with the trial court 
which has substantial discretion, uh, deemed it appropriate that defendant have no contact with the victim, which is fairly standard when there is an outcome of this nature? Well, Your Honor, um, I think that in evaluating reasonableness, the court has to look at the importance of the activity that is being impinged on and the degree to which it is necessary to restrict that activity to accomplish the purpose of rehabilitation. And in this case, it is true that looking at the transcript, it appears that the trial court was concerned that Mr. Medlin might harass his mother-in-law, but she handled that concern explicitly and directly by forbidding Mr. Medlin to harass his mother-in-law, and Mr. Medlin doesn't challenge that condition. But in this case, she went much further than was necessary to accomplish that, that purpose. To, to, and, Justice, to Justice Morgan's question, why is it unreasonable to use a belt and suspenders approach by saying first you can't harass them, and then in addition to that, to make sure that you don't have any misunderstanding about what is or isn't harassment. You just can't contact this person at all. Why? Maybe you wouldn't do that. Maybe I wouldn't do that under this set of circumstances. But why is that unreasonable or irrational? Your Honor, that is an excellent question, and it really goes right to the heart of the matter. Um, it wouldn't be unreasonable if there weren't a consideration on the other side. And the consideration on the other side is that it is also helpful and important to his rehabilitation that he maintain a positive relationship with his children. So, is, if, is there, I mean, the, the evidence, at least as I understand it, the, the trial court was aware of the custody order and aware of the fact that the children were in uh, the victim's custody. Yes, Given sir. that the trial court was aware of it, why isn't that some indication that the trial court understood the, the custody-related implications of the order and decided that the no-contact requirement, uh, in spite of the adverse effects on your client's ability to contact her, was still a reasonable thing to do? Well, Your Honor, I'm not entirely sure that the trial court really did quite grasp the implication of the fact that she made it so that Mr. Medlin could not set up a visitation right even through a third party. Because at one point in the transcript, she says, I hope you can find a third party to set up visitation. So I'm not entirely sure that she quite did understand how draconian that requirement was. But nonetheless, I think that the whole idea of reasonableness is that it it calls for balancing. It's it, it is important that he not harass his mother-in-law, but it's also important that he have a positive relationship with his children. I think we would all agree that his having a positive relationship with his children is incredibly important to his rehabilitation. And so it the the belt and suspenders certainly make sense, but you have to look at the other side of the equation, which is what conduct are you restricting? And if you're restricting conduct that is so important and so valuable and so essential as his ability to be able to contact his children, uh, even through a third party to see how they're doing, 
then then the belt and suspenders in that case just doesn't it goes much further than is necessary well why why is the the relative weight to be given to these factors not a question for the trial court's discretion rather than something that this court or the court of appeals should uh reweigh on appeal well your honor it certainly is a matter for the trial court's discretion but the fact that this court has said that probation conditions must be just and they must be reasonable and the fact that the legislature has felt it necessary to legislate in this area and specifically require that probation conditions be re reasonably related to the defendant's rehabilitation means that just by definition, these things are subject to evaluation and to questioning whether or not they were reasonable. And in this case, I don't believe they are. I think that the trial court wanted to prevent Mr. Medlin from harassing his mother-in-law, but she went much further than when was necessary and put many more restrictions that were necessary on an activity that's a very positive one and conducive to the defendant's rehabilitation. But while the trial court had a no contact provision as a special condition of probation, which is fairly standard when you have a victim who expresses a desire not to have a perpetrator to contact that victim, are you saying that this court should override that substantial discretion here in light of the fact that there was a visitation in place that had been put into effect by a different court? Yes, Your Honor, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, this case was unusual because, um, first of all, she wasn't technically the victim of the crime. And I'm not, I don't know that that technicality is really important, but just for the record, she wasn't technically the victim of the crime. But it's understandable that the court was concerned about his not harassing her. But this case is unusual because this person who was involved in the crime also happens to be the custodian of the defendant's children. And so I believe that in those specific circumstances, it was incumbent on the trial court to apply very special care and very special concern for not over re overly restricting that very key and important relationship between the defendant and his children. Well, articulate for me, if you can, then the carve out that you would have us to state because I'm hearing two different aspects from you. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. But it sounds like on one hand, there is some aspect of a rational relationship that you say should yield to the visitation here. So it sounds as though you're not asking us to overturn the rational relationship uh, aspect of the condition of probation in the discretion of the trial court, but that you would have us to have the visitation to yield to that what would be our carve out basis to articulate to other trial courts concerning what they should determine when there may be competing interests. I, I'm not, I'm not completely sure that I understand your question. So please stop me if I'm answering the wrong question, but, but I think the key here is that whenever you have a, a reasonableness inquiry, 
that implies that you're balancing two different things. And here you're balancing the purposes of probation. You want to make sure that Mr. Medlin doesn't do something he's not supposed to do, but you want to do that in the least restrictive means that you can. And in this case, it was particularly important because the conduct that needed to be interfered with was his ability to visit his children. So I, I think if I'm understanding correctly, what a, a trial court would need to understand in future is that when you are impinging on something so crucial as a defendant's ability to visit his children, then you have to take extra care to narrowly tailor the the probation condition condition that will restrict that activity. It's was it not a, was it not enough here for the trial court, uh, as I looked at the special conditions of probation, to say that it was not to be defendant initiated contact with the victim? No, Your Honor, I, I don't believe that was sufficient because when he cannot initiate anything, even through a third party, then his visitation rights are completely at the discretion of his mother-in-law or his wife. And that is not acceptable because it is such an important thing for him to be able to do. And the custody order, the fact that the custody order exists in the first place, indicates that the district court felt that visitation was in the children's best interest as well. And it's not enough to make Mr. Medlin's ability to interact with his own children completely at the discretion of his wife and his mother. Okay, and lastly, lastly for me, um, and thank you for engaging me this much on this. Are you asking us to hold that there was an abuse of discretion in the imposition of this special condition of probation that a perpetrator could not have contact with the victim? No, Your Honor, I'm asking this court to find, to hold that this special condition preventing the defendant from having any contact whatsoever with his mother-in-law, even through a third party where she has custody of his children and he has rights under the visitation order was not reasonably related to his rehabilitation because it was more restrictive than necessary to accomplish, accomplish the goal of rehabilitation and was in fact detrimental to his rehabilitation. So, so just to, to clarify then, it sounds like you're saying that if the trial court's statement about, I hope you can find a third party to set up visitation, that, that, in, that that's actually contradicted by the strict terms of the order itself. And that if the order had said, you know, check the box for no contact, he can't um, contact her by any means, but the exception, the box would be checked and it would say, except he may contact through a third party to arrange visitation. That that would have then been consistent with the custody order and consistent with his rights as a parent. I think that that would come much closer to exactly weighing the, the need to protect the mother-in-law from fearing that she would be harassed and protecting his ability to still have have the ability to initiate a visit so that he can maintain a relationship with his children and, and check on them and find out 
I mean, as it stands right now, he couldn't even ask someone to call his mother-in-law and find out how the kids are doing in school. And so I think your suggestion is definitely a way to solve that problem. And just one final point. Um, is there a sense in which the trial court's order is sort of internally inconsistent because it orders him to comply with the custody order, but then it orders him to have no contact in a way that prevents him from complying with the custody order? Yes, Your Honor. I, I had a list of all the reasons that I thought that the um, the order wasn't reasonable, and that is exactly one of the ones that I was going to mention, is that it, it just is, is internally inconsistent. Counsel, you would uh, agree that a conviction for a felony uh, leads to the forfeiture of some very important rights, wouldn't you? Yes, Your Honor. And uh, why in this case would um, uh, filing a motion in the district court relating to custody not be the most appropriate or more appropriate thing to do, uh, given your client's concerns about visitation? Well, I don't think that that my client could accomplish anything in the district court in that way. I think that it, the person who should do that is the mother-in-law. If she is not satisfied with the custody order, she should do that. He's satisfied with the custody order. The custody order is not the problem. The problem is the restriction on the custody order placed by the probation order. Right, understand, but in terms of custody, some places have custody mediation and those sorts of things uh, where these types of issues can be officially resolved through uh, the court process. Uh, wouldn't um, uh, exchange of uh, the child or children uh, be covered by those types of situations? Well, Your Honor, the child custody is outside my expertise, certainly, but I, I think that it would be very difficult to solve a problem that's created by a probation condition in that manner because Mr. Medlin has to obey the probation condition and it requires him not to have any contact whatsoever, even indirectly through a third party with his mother-in-law. So I don't, I don't really think that, it, it doesn't seem to me that there would be something he could ask the district court to do that would fix that problem. Let me follow up on that um, real quick. Um, the state in their brief um, says that there's nothing to prevent um, his mother-in-law from contacting him to set up the visitation. Um, yes. And do you agree with that? Yes. And why is that not sufficient during the period of the probation to satisfy um, the conditions of the custody order and his need to see his children? Well, Your Honor, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. You would speak up a little bit. Your Honor, the reason that that is not sufficient is that it puts his ability to contact his children completely at the discretion of his mother-in-law. And that is not appropriate because the custody order gave him visitation rights. And it, it's also not appropriate because it places the burden completely on the mother-in-law. Circumstances might change. She could be ill. There are things that could happen that could cause him to miss several of his timed visits because she didn't initiate custody. And I think it's important to mention that the Court of Appeals has 
held that if a custody order grants custody in the first place, it cannot also then make that custody or the visits completely contingent on the discretion of the custodial person or the other parent. But that's that's the effect here. And it's just too important a relationship to make it hinge on the discretion of the custodian of the of the children. Okay, thanks. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. If the court has no further questions, I will save my remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLE. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is William Madry, and I represent the appellee, the state of North Carolina. The issue before the court today is if it was an abuse of discretion for the trial court to impose as a special condition of probation that the defendant not contact or harass the victim of his crime. For a special condition of probation to be an abuse of discretion, the condition must be manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it cannot be the result of a reasoned decision. In the case before the court today, as the majority at the Court of Appeals correctly held, the trial court's condition of probation, ordering no contact between the victim of the crime and the defendant, is reasonably related to the protection of this victim, the defendant's rehabilitation, and compliance with his probation. As allowed by NC General Statute 15A 1343B110, trial courts are allowed to impose any other conditions determined by the court to be reasonably related to defendant's rehabilitation. In this instance, trial courts are accorded substantial discretion in imposing these condi in, in, in imposing conditions under this section. Further, the extent to which a condition of, of probation may be imposed hinges upon whether the challenge condition bears a reasonable relationship to the offenses committed by the defendant, or if the condition tends to reduce the defendant's exposure to crime, or if the condition assists in the defendant's rehabilitation. The trial court's decision to impose this condition of probation that, the, that prevented the defendant from having any defendant-initiated contact with the victim was reasonably related to the charges. The victim, Ms. Uh, Mitchell in this case, is the defendant's mother-in-law. She was deemed at the beginning of the trial uh, by the prosecutor in the trial court as needing protection from the defendant as there had clearly been on the record some harassment of her from the defendant. Um, at that time, when that no contact order was entered by the trial court, uh, the defendant did not object. Um, as shown by the trial testimony and contentions at the sentencing hearing, the same order was warranted as part of the conditions of defendant's probation. Um, the person that the defendant is not allowed to contact is the victim of his crime. Uh, the defendant stole from Ms. Mitchner and pawned off her family heirlooms. It logically follows that the condition is then clearly connected to the crime. Uh, larceny by false pretenses required that some items be taken from someone else, given to someone else under false pretenses, and, and a benefit be given. In this case, uh, I think it's fair to say there are two victims, the pawn shop at which the defendant uh, took the, the heirlooms that he took from Ms. Metzger and, and pawned off. Um, it's clear uh, that I, I think that satisfies the, the first prong right there that this is a victim of the crime. It, 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 this special condition preventing him from contacting this missioner as a victim uh, is is reasonably related. Um, let, me let me explore with you, if I may, counsel, uh, something that 
and my colleague Justice Earls raised as to inconsistency. If the defendant's mother-in-law or the defendant's wife, neither of whom would have been uh, inable, unable to uh, explore some visitation aspects, uh, since the defendant wouldn't be able to have under the special condition of probation um, any opportunity to have contact with the victim. If neither the mother-in-law or the wife don't timely, properly, or successfully make child visitation arrangements for the defendant so that the defendant doesn't need to contact the mother-in-law, the victim here directly, then how does the defendant protect his ability to follow his special condition of probation to, quote, comply with conditions in child custody case, unquote? Um, so, Justice Warren, that's a good question, and I think the trial court in this case did the best job they could to, to harmonize the, the custody order and the special condition of probation. If we look at the, um, the back and forth between the trial court and uh, the victim, Ms. Mitchner, they talk about setting up a, a third party who would be able to, to contact her uh, to set up these child custody visits. Uh, I, I understand that there's a concern that this condition might uh, prevent the defendant from setting up these visits to see his children. Um, however, that's not necessarily in the record. Um, we're not here on an appeal where the defendant has been violated for his probation because he tried to contact Ms. Mitchner to set up a visit. Um, we're here just right afterwards. Um, again, as I note in my brief, and I, I argued below, and the, the Court of Appeals agreed with in the majority decision, um, nothing uh, prevents Ms. Mitchner from calling uh, calling him to set up the visit. Um, the Court of Appeals found, you know, and I think this court should find as well, that the, the child custody order is not in front of this court. Uh, it wasn't in front of the trial court, and that, you know, the special condition of probation imposed um, does not alter the frequency or the length of defendant's visitation with his children, and those will remain undisturbed. But, but, but curiously, isn't it somewhat uh, circular and, and inconsistent within the confines of the trial court's conditions of probation in that, on one hand, the defendant is depending upon others who are not restricted by probation, namely the mother-in-law and the defendant's wife, from being able to govern whether or not his visitation is properly pursued because he can't have contact with the victim, his mother-in-law. Then on the other hand, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, then the defendant has no opportunity to contact the mother-in-law directly. Then if the mother-in-law somehow gets in contact with the defendant, then the defendant has contact with the mother-in-law in return and that therein would be a probation violation as well. Well, I think the the Justice Morgan to speak to that the condition prevents the defendant from contacting Miss Mitchner. Uh, nothing prevents Miss Mitchner. I I don't necessarily think I I would agree that if Miss Mitchner contacted the defendant that that would be a violation of the special condition of probation. Well, is, is contact limited to initiated contact? Uh, if there's a conversation that's not initiated by the defendant, but the defendant is engaged in such conversation, then isn't he having contact in return, even though it's not initiated? What's the state willing to say no contact means initiated contact? 
Justice Morgan, if we look at page 34 or page 33 and 34 of the record, that is the probation order that was entered by the, the court, the trial court. Um, on page 34, the box 20, which is, I think the condition, well, this is the condition that we're discussing. The condition sta or, um, states not assault, threaten, harass, be found in or on the premises of, or workplace or have any contact with Ellen Michener. Contact includes any defendant initiated conduct or contact direct or indirect by any means. Um, so I think you know, the, the answer would be if Miss 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 Michener, as I read that, called the defendant, I don't believe that would be a violation of his probation. Counsel, there's um, nothing in this order that prevents the defendant from going to DSS or the district court to seek, if necessary, whatever modification of the visitation that could comply with this court's order and uh, at the same time uh, give him the opportunity that he seeks. Isn't that correct? Chief Justice Newby, that is correct. Um, there, there's nothing in this condition of probation that um, takes away any already established custody rights. I think as Justice Berger kind of alluded to, if the defendant feels that there's an issue here that prevents him from being able to see his children or, or comply with that custody order, that the district court would be the proper place to go for that. Um, as the majority of the Court of Appeals did note, the, the custody order is not in front of the trial court. It wasn't in front of the, the Court of Appeals and it isn't in front of this court. Um, so this, we don't really have the, the power to modify that. Does the custody order as it stands now essentially leave specific dates, times, and places for visitation to be worked out between Ms. Michener and the parents? Well, Justice Irvin, un unfortunately, the custody order is not part of the record. We, so we, I was afraid, I was afraid that was your answer, but I wanted to make sure I was correct. Assuming that. It, Assuming that there was no provision in the custody order that governs specific times, places, or locations, which I assume is why the defendant would perhaps wish to be able to initiate custody with uh, uh, conversations with Ms. Mitchner to work that kind of thing out. To Justice Berger's point, it would be appropriate for the for the defendant to go to the uh, district court and seek a modification to specify when, where, and under what circumstances visitation would take place, wouldn't it? Yes, Justice Irvin, and that's essentially the, the state's position on this, is that the condition itself that, that states that the defendant cannot contact the victim of his crime, that cannot be said to be an abuse of discretion. As we've seen, and as I think several of you have discussed, that's a common condition of probation. It's so common that it's enumerated on the pro, on the probation form. It, it, it's spelled out. Um, it, it's not listed under box 22, which is the other. This is a condition that is regularly imposed. Um, if the defendant in this court believe that the, the condition creates a situation in which the defendant is not able to actually comply with the custody order or it deprives him of the right to see uh, his children, uh, the, the remedy in that case shouldn't be that the, the condition of probation that prevents the defendant from contacting the victim be vacated. 
Rather, uh, I think the, the correct uh, remedy in that case would be to, to remand the case back to the trial court to make the finding that he could contact her for the purposes of setting up visits with his children. And I think, uh, as I stated earlier, the trial court really did try to harmonize that custody order and this condition of probation to the best of its ability. It had a conversation with Miss um, Mitchner, and the only thing we know about the the, the custody order is the trial court asked Miss Mitchner, "How often does the defendant get to see his children?" She answered, "Every two weeks for an hour or so." He asked the trial court asked. Where does it normally happen? She stated at my home and at that point stated, you know, I'd like it not to happen there anymore. I want to find a, another place for this to happen. And that's when he, uh, you know, entered as a, a, another special condition that, you know, the defendant complied with the custody order. The trial court made an effort to, to do the best that they could um, to, to make this work with also balancing and i think it's important that we balance the interests of protecting the victim of this crime the state has a strong interest in protecting victims of crime from unwanted harassment and conduct from the perpetrators of these crimes um and i think if, if, if we don't have the trial court order in front of us why should we assume that there is not an established schedule ready in place um as opposed to assuming that somehow it depends on the discretion of the victim. Chief Justice Newby, I, I agree with you, and that that's kind of the argument here from the state is you know a lot of the, the the discussion around this custody order is limited by the fact that it's not in the record, and, and all we have to depend on is um, the the short back and forth between the trial court judge and the victim, Miss Mitchner about you know the frequency and length of the visits Counsel, how should we look at the fact that during sentencing here the mother-in-law the victim uh made an express statement that she was willing to meet the defendant at a public place such as a restaurant or a park for the visitation and the prosecutor actually supported that aspect uh, but once something was raised about a notice of appeal, uh, that's when the no contact provision came about. Justice Morgan, I think that goes to just show that, uh, you know, the victim in this case still had made a, a an overt uh, gesture that she was going to comply with the custody order. Uh, I think the the fact that the prosecutor asked for the no harassment, no contact on appeal goes to the, the the prior issues that they had had at the beginning of the trial where the defendant was harassing the victim and in the trial and the prosecutor wanted the victim to be free from harassment during trial. And further, you know, if the defendant was going to appeal this conviction uh, in any sense, the prosecutor wanted to protect the same victim from similar harassment uh, pending appeal. Well, should this court accord any consideration to the fact that while the no contact provision was put in place after the the victim spoke and said that she was fine with still allowing the visitation to take place with contact with her at a public place, should we accord that any consideration at all that the 
uh, trial court here overshot what was necessary uh, to protect the victim if the victim openly said again during sentencing that she was fine with still meeting with the with the defendant just in a public place and not in her home. Well, I think I don't know that we can go that far to, to say uh, that she was okay with with contact at all. The the full quote, uh, Justice Morgan, um, the the court says, "Let me ask you this, Miss Mitchell. Right now, do they visit with these children any?" She replies, "Yes, ma'am." The court asks, "And that's okay with you?" Miss Mitchell says, "Yes, ma'am. The the custody order is for one hour or more every two weeks." The court asked where that happens, and she states they've been coming over to her house. And she, they, the court asked, and that's okay with you? And her reply is, I don't want them at the house. I prefer that we meet them at a restaurant or park or someplace like that. So I think it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword in that, you know, on one hand, she's saying she, she has no problem with the defendant seeing his children and complying with the custody order, but on the same on the same side of that, Sword, she's saying, I don't want him in my house anymore. Um, you know, she wants that to be in some some third party place. Isn't that the overshot, though, as I'm bringing up the fact that no contact keeps it from happening in the home, but also prevents it from occurring anyplace else, such as a restaurant or a park where the victim said she was okay to meet both the defendant as well as a defendant's wife for the exchange of visitation. So I, I, Justice Morgan, I, I don't think it's quite the overshot in that case because um, I, I think why the trial court in, imposed the, the no contact and kind of how we we talk, you know, I think we talked about it a little earlier. Um, I don't think the trial court trusted in its discretion the, the defendant to be able to contact the victim without harassing her and to not create a situation where if she if, if the defendant is allowed to contact the victim that we then have to come back and have some some discussion as well is this actually harassment or was it not harassment um and, and in that case in the interest of protecting the victim and uh, making sure that you know her interests are still taken into account uh, i don't believe it's an overshot in, in that instance and again um you know the the record below makes it clear that the trial court really, you know, it, it weighed the the rights that the defendant had to see his children. It it, it weighed the interests that, that Ms. Michener had in in her future contact with the defendant and came down on this that, you know, hey, you're gonna need to find a third party to set up these uh, child custody visits. Uh, but Outside of that, you are not to have any contact with the victim uh, after it, it was pretty clear and on the record that the harassment and contact from the from the defendant to the victim was unwanted. But but isn't the entire problem that the trial court's order prevents the defendant from setting up visitation through a third party? Um, the condition that you pointed us to specifically says. Uh, it lists all the means he cannot use uh, email, pager, gift giving, or through any other person. So, and, and, and so I heard you say earlier that if that the, the correct remedy would be to remand um, to allow the trial court to correct the condition um, 
and I understand that you don't believe that's necessary at all, but, but given your position that that's the correct remedy, do you, do you have any objection to that remedy? So, justice Earls, my response would be is, is if this court finds that as imposed a special condition of probation that prevents the defendant from contacting the victim creates a situation in which he is unable to comply with the custody order and unable to contact Miss um, Michener, the victim of his crime, who has custody of his children. The proper remedy would then be to uh, remand the case back to the trial court to have the trial court make the appropriate findings that would harmonize the condition that prevents the defendant from from um, contacting the victim and allows him to still comply with the order. Uh, on that same line where where you were reading from, we all see there is the accept and then a blank. Uh, you know, I don't think we would be here if if the blank was filled in and it said accept to contact Ms. Mitchner for the uh, express purpose of setting up visitation with his children or with his children. Um, that that would be my answer to your question there. Thank you. And, and counsel, even if we were, excuse me, even if we were to uh, uh, find for the state, uh, isn't it true that defendant's probation officer could always seek a motion to modify the terms and conditions of probation if there were some issue preventing the defendant from seeing uh, his his children? Yes, Justice Berger, that would certainly probably have been the most direct and easiest way to fix any issue here uh, is if, you know, the defendant felt this way. Um, I think the state has a, a, a strong interest in protecting the condition that um, prevents a defendant from contacting the victim of the crime. Uh, I, I understand that this is a, a, an interesting case, but Miss um, Mitchner is not going to be the last victim of a crime who is not going to want to be contacted by the perpetrator. And so, to, to I do not think this case supports a holding that uh, a condition, a special condition of probation preventing a defendant from contacting the victim would be an abuse of discretion and doesn't meet the standards of uh, 15A. 1343 B110. If there are no further questions, I would like to briefly conclude. Thank you. Uh, so as as stated, um, the state believes that this court should uphold that a special condition of probation preventing the defendant from contacting the victim is not an abuse of discretion, especially when the record below at the trial court indicates that prior to trial and during trial, the defendant was harassing the victim of the crime. Um, as imposed, if this court finds that the special condition of probation creates a situation in which the this court believes that uh, defendant cannot contact the custodian of his children. The state believes the proper remedy in that case would be to remand the remand the case back to the trial court with instructions to make a finding to harmonize the condition with the trial with the uh, custody order. Uh, this time, I have no for nothing further. Thank you, thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Ms. Haygood, you're muted. Thank you, Chief Justice Newby. There were many 
many issues brought up and some of them are factual and I will just mention very, very briefly that it is completely true that the custody order was not part of the trial court record, but it was discussed and it is clear from the trial court record that the current custody order does not contain any automatic provisions for visitation. And that's why there, there and I, I deduced that from the fact that there was conversation back and forth about how visitation would be set up. Um, Ms. Higgins, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I have a question about the timing of this. As I read the order, um, which was entered in September of 2019, the yes. probation was to run for 30 months. And that would end next month, if I'm calculating correctly. Is that right? It hasn't begun yet because it's been stayed because the case has been on appeal. Okay, so it would all it, so it would be worthwhile to seek a remand to get an exception to the no contact during that period of time. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. And is that what you what you would um, favor here? Yes, Your Honor. It is. It is what I would favor. Um, and that and that brings to mind um, or brings me to the the two main points that I would like to make on rebuttal. One is that any time a trial court chooses probation, the trial court does so based on a determination that probation is in the best interest of rehabilitation, and it doesn't make sense to choose probation for the defendant, but then set the defendant up to fail. And that's one of the concerns about this condition is that I, I believe that it does set him up to fail. And that's in no one's best interest. That's not it. When, if he were to inadvertently violate this condition, it sets up a cascade of negative consequences that are negative for him, for his children, even for the state of North Carolina, because they have to go through the procedures of you know, violating him and, and, and if he ends up in custody, then obviously the, the trial court's original estimation of the case and the best interest of all the parties have not been served. Also, the most important thing is that um, the, the state seems to argue that there are ways that Mr. Medlin could go about trying to fix the probation condition, but that's very much related to what I'm saying. It doesn't make sense to set him up to fail and put this burden on him that he needs to scramble and try to get before the district court and make some change. The most important thing though, is that assuming that there was a compelling interest in making sure that Mr. Medlin did not harass his mother-in-law, as Justice Morgan put it, this overshoots the mark. This is much more harsh than necessary to accomplish that. It's more restrictive than necessary to accomplish that. And the main thing is that this court and the legislature have made it very, very clear that reasonableness is the key. Justice and reasonableness and a fit are the key to whether or not a probation condition is an abuse of discretion. And this probation condition just fails that test. It's not uh, a good fit. Do you agree that what we've got here is an abuse of discretion standard review? Yes, Your Honor. Basically, that 
as I understand our law, uh, an abuse of discretion requires giving that that standard requires giving considerable deference to the trial court. Am I wrong about that? No, Your Honor. And in essence, my understanding has always been that in order for something to be an abuse of discretion under state law, you have to have a situation where, in essence, no rational person would have done what was done. Yes, sir. And your contention that no rational person would have imposed the uh, term and term uh, and condition that's at issue here. Your Honor, the phrase "no rational person" is, you know, sounds pejorative and derogatory, and I, of course, would would never dream of saying that the trial court. Well, is, you know, is in your in your in your view, is that a misstatement of the applicable standard of review? It, it's not. It's not a misstatement, but it carries connotations that I don't wish to um, agree to. <laughs> but reason the the trial court has to obey the legislature and it has to obey this court. And probation conditions have to be reasonable. And this probation, you can say that it's irrational because it's not reasonable. This probation condition just fails the test of reasonableness that this court has imposed and that the legislature has composed. Well, do we, do we, do we, is, is the question before us whether we think it's reasonable or is the question whether a reasonable trial court judge could have thought that it was reasonable? I don't think it really matters which, which. So you think, that, you think the two are the same then? I think that when a, when this court and a state statute contains a requirement that something be reasonable just by definition reasonableness requires weighing whether or not it's it's reasonable and in this case it wasn't reasonable it overshot the mark it impinges much more than necessary for the purposes of rehabilitation so i think that the trial court to put it technically acted irrationally because she imposed a condition that wasn't reasonable. It's it's not internally consistent. It um, impinges on extremely important conduct to accomplish rehabilitation much more than necessary. And therefore it's not reasonable. Therefore it was an abuse of discretion. Thank you. Thank you. If the court has no further questions, I will end my argument. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you everyone, Madam Clerk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.